The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Over a brief section that deals with praying and prayer in the corporate worship of the church, and Pastor Britt is going to be addressing that text in uh, a few weeks. Uh, we've sort of uh, charted out uh, the whole book of First Timothy between now and October and sort of carved up some special pieces that he is going to be uh, teaching and presenting to us. And uh, that's one that uh, we'll uh, sort of uh, circle back to in a couple weeks. So this morning we're going to go to verse 9 through 15 of chapter 1. And that is what the Lord has for us. So if you would turn your Bibles there. And follow along with me as I read to you the word of the Lord. The Apostle Paul writes, Likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness. With self-control. That is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now go do it. Thank you for coming this morning. It's been wonderful to have you. Uh, we have a song or something to wrap up our worship time today. <laughs> oh, you expect more than that from the sermon. Well, as you have already ascertained, as you, um, as we read through the text for this morning. We come across one of the most difficult and challenging texts in all the New Testament, frankly, at least for our day and for our culture. In so many different ways, uh, the, the truth of God's Word runs counter to culture. The truth of God's Word, in fact, judges every culture, and it always has. And ours is no different. But I would suspect that you would agree with me this morning that, that there are very few things that we run into in the text of the New Testament that runs more counter, that runs more uh, sort of sideways to the, uh, the common thinking and the common belief system of our culture than the text that is actually before us right now. It would be hard if you were to flip through the New Testament and, and, and try to identify the most provocative, offensive text you could possibly uh, pull out in modern American culture and throw at somebody. You'd be hard-pressed, I think, to find one more provocative or offensive to the sensibilities of our culture than the one that is before us. And so I've, uh, I've put on my body armor this morning, and I have prepared our security team uh, to form a perimeter uh, in the event that things get tossed this way. Uh, we laugh and we joke, but God's Word is no joke, and God has designed things to operate a certain way, and He means what He says, and we can like it or we can lump it, we can agree with it or we can uh, cast it aside, we can submit to it or we can reject it. That is the, the, the sort of the option uh, um, survey that each and every one of us has for any text of Scripture, and this is no different. What makes it particularly difficult, I think, is that we live in a culture that has for some time now been sort of blazing ahead at breakneck pace into further licentiousness and rebellion against divine authority. And the further we run into uh, licentiousness, which is just simply the, 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 a way of living that says there are no bounds, there are no moral boundaries, there is nothing that is right or wrong, anything is fair game so long as it's what I want... And, as, as long, and the further we run away from any sense of divine authority, passages like this get even more difficult for us to try and understand and make sense of. And more than understanding and make sense of, as people who identify with the Lord Jesus, to obey, to obey. 
a decade ago if we were sitting here just a decade ago and we were opening up God's Word to teach this text. Uh, Folks would be struggling uh, particularly with words like submissiveness and remain quiet and so forth. It's not that those terms are any easier for us to navigate right now. It's just that now, just a decade later, we don't even get to those words before we hit controversy. We can't even get to the fourth word of the first sentence before we hit controversy. And that fourth word is, he says, likewise also that women. We have to stop if we had time, if we had two or three weeks to spend a whole week trying to lay out what constitutes womanhood. What is a woman and what is a man? What qualifies somebody to be a woman? What constitutes womanhood? Who is it that's responsible to heed this instruction? Up until a decade ago in our culture, I think everybody would have necessarily understood exactly what a woman is and what a man is. There's great, tremendous confusion about those terms now. And we don't have time this morning to go there. I'll assume that if you're in this room today, you understand who the women are and who the text is addressed to. Now, I want to say at the outset, as we get to this text, there are two common errors that uh, sort of come regularly as people address this particular text and dealing with it. The one common error is there is just a whole world that just would explain away the text to where it means absolutely nothing. And this comes at us really from two directions in the body of Christ. It comes really from sort of the, the liberal wing of Christianity, sort of the whole liberal side of the Christian church. And we don't need to talk too much about that because that whole, whole slice of sort of the Christian world just outright denies the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture. So once you deny the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture, then you've given yourself free license <clears throat> just to flip through and pick what you like and discard what you don't. And that's exactly what we find within that slice of Christianity. And most certainly, this is one of the early passages that is discarded as useless, outdated, antiquated, and of no use and value in a modern culture. That's not surprising. Where it gets surprising is when the the assault comes from within the evangelical church. And that has, at least since the late 60s and early 70s, been the reality when it comes to this text. We have folks that call themselves evangelical egalitarians. Um, which are sort of a slice of, of the evangelical world that comes at this text. And they use a couple of strategies to sort of explain away what the plain meaning of the text is. One of those strategies is they just say in this text what Paul is doing is he is dealing with a particular cultural problem at, Ephes- at, at in the city of Ephesus. They would argue that there was some sort of excessive feminism that was going on. And so Paul is just simply trying, in a one-off sort of a way, trying to correct a particular issue at a particular church. And he had no uh, sense for the fact that this would apply to anyone else in any other church at any other time. It sounds reasonable on the surface, except when you do a little research into the city of Ephesus, you find that there's no, there's no sort of historical basis for that evaluation. Ephesus, like every other Roman province at the time, was a male-dominated culture. Uh, just like all of the Roman Empire was at the time, there were no female magistrates. There was uh, a, a tremendous cult worship in the city around the Temple of Artemis, who was a, a, a female goddess. But even that cult worship was run and dominated by men. So that argument holds no water. Another sort of strategy is to say where Paul says here, well, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. They would say, well, what Paul is actually saying is, well, that's my personal opinion. I don't permit this. Well, you might. It's a stretch. And it's not true. We'll see, because Peter says exactly the same thing in a different way. But perhaps the most common that I see from that world is to use Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, sort of as a biblical trump card, a passage to which all other passages apparently must bow. Galatians 3.28 says this, you may be familiar, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so the argument goes that here Paul is writing to the church in Galatia, and what he's really saying is that there's no difference between men and women, just like there's no difference between a Jew or a Greek. 
Well, again, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time here, but it completely ignores the context to which Paul is speaking in Galatia. This passage has absolutely nothing to do with divine order, which is what Paul is going to speak to in 1 Timothy. What, what, what he's writing to in the Galatian church is he's, he's talking about the issue of salvation. He's talking about the issue of our standing before God. And he's making the case that when we come to Jesus and we bow before the cross, that there are no longer any human distinctions that stand in the way of our standing before the Lord and before the cross. That, that salvation is open to every person equally. And anyone from any walk, of any gender, from any place, any station and culture can come to Christ on the same exact terms and all inherit the same benefits of salvation. Nobody has an advantage when it comes to saving faith. And nobody gets extra benefits from saving faith. We're all equal before the Lord in our salvation. And that's most certainly true. The scripture plays that out all throughout But to pit that against 1 Timothy chapter 2 as though somehow it's a trump card that offsets what Paul teaches here is to miss the point altogether. It's to to argue apples against oranges, if you will, theologically. It's a sleight of hand. Theological trick. And so the one error we find is sort of just different ways to explain away the text to where it doesn't mean what it clearly says. The other error that we find in coming at this text is the opposite extreme. It's interpreting this text in a chauvinistic sort of manipulative sort of a way. And this has found itself uh, sort of far too often in the body of Christ throughout the history of the church. And it still rears its ugly head far too often in the body of Christ, even right now. The text being used as a way to manipulate and suppress the contribution of women in the body, used to manipulate how women can dress and how women are to present themselves. It's used as a way to relegate women to some sort of a second-class sort of citizenship within the body of Christ. It's used as a way for men to arrogantly sort of exalt themselves as superior or more important in the body than the ladies who are among us. It's used as a way to silence the voices of women altogether in the life of the church. And it's foolish, and it's wrong, and it's done great damage in the body of Christ to use this text that way. And I might say sort of as an aside related to this, to that, that, that sort of way of approaching this text has been a major contributor to much of the abuse and the misconduct that has occurred in the body of Christ throughout the years and throughout the generations. It's created sort of a climate in which physical and sexual abuse can just run rampant throughout the body of Christ, perpetrated often by the very men who hold this kind of a view of this text and enforce it upon the body, pastors, church leaders. And in doing so, what's happened is women have been suppressed and they've been intimidated to the point that they're afraid to speak up when they're being abused. And that is, frankly, shameful. It is disgraceful. And it should be an embarrassment to every man who associates himself with the body of Christ. There should be no crack or crevice or nook where a man can hide in the body of Christ and use the Word of God as an abusive tool in the lives of the women in the body of Christ. That is the responsibility of every man in the body to make sure that that is not happening here or anywhere where we have responsibility before the Lord. Can I say that more directly? So it's true. You can clap because it's worth clapping. It needs to be said. Now, those are two ways that this text is used wrongly on both ends of the spectrum. But I would say to you this, this passage was universally understood the same way in the history of the church for about 1,970 years. It was not controversial. It's really not in American culture until the late 60s and the rise of modern feminism in our culture that sort of a flood of, quote, alternative interpretations have risen when it comes to addressing this text. One scholar looked back and he did a a research uh, project on just sort of evaluating how scholarly theological articles 
published in the culture addressed this text. And he found that really up until about 1968 or 1969, there was no controversy theologically about this text. But starting in the late 60s, a whole flood of articles were written offering alternative ways to address this particular text. And one author by the name of Brown said this. He said, when opinions and convictions suddenly undergo dramatic alteration, although nothing new has been discovered, and the only thing that's dramatically changed is the spirit of the age, it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that it's that spirit that's had the important role to play in the shift. And I think he's absolutely dead on. In the late 60s, a dramatic shift in the cultural perception and the cultural pressure on the church began to be enforced and the biblical revision ensued. I want to say one other thing Uh, as we get into this. I want to say this. I am absolutely for the essential equality of men and women and so is the Bible. Did you hear me? I'm absolutely for the essential absolute equality of men and women and the Bible is for that too. The Bible makes clear both men and women are created in the image of God the same way. Pastor Britt taught us not too long ago on the image of God for a couple of weeks and explained to us what that means. And men and women are created equal in value, both in the same image of God, no distinction in their value before the Lord. And as Galatians chapter 3 that we just read a moment ago also makes clear, both men and women hold equal spiritual standing before the Lord. That is, they're equal in their salvation. There is no distinction whatsoever. They are both equal inheritors of the grace of God. They are both equal inheritors of all the benefits that come with saving faith. There's nothing in the Bible that indicates men are somehow smarter, more capable, better leaders, better communicators, or anything like that than women. And experience tells us that often the opposite is true. Now, while we're told, sort of by modern feminism, that the Bible suppresses women and is, in fact, chauvinistic, what we find when we come to the text of the New Testament And what we find when we look at this issue historically is that the Bible still does and historically always exalted women rather than suppressing them. It's only when evil people with dark hearts use it as a weapon and make it say what it actually does not say that it becomes a tool of chauvinism. The Bible in its original context, as we're going to see when Paul speaks to Timothy in Ephesus, in its original context, it was controversial when it spoke about women. It was controversial in the opposite way that it's controversial today. It was controversial in the sense that in its culture and in its day, it exalted women to a position that they did not hold anywhere else. And thus the controversy. There are only two places where the Bible makes a distinction between men and women. And it makes the distinction solely on the level of their role. Not their value, not their intelligence, not their capability, but their role. And there's only two zones in which the Bible speaks to a difference in that. And that's in the home and it's in the church. And we'll speak to both of those this morning. Now, when we get to our text today, we need to notice something first off. The first verse that we come, the first word we come to in verse 9 is the word likewise. We're tempted to skip over likewise, but it's a very important text and understand, a word in understanding this particular text. Because it connects what Paul is going to say here to women uh, with what he said just before it, primarily to men. Uh, We skipped that and we haven't taught it yet, so we don't necessarily see that connection. But just let me give you the the sort of the overview flyby. In the text immediately preceding, Paul is talking about, he introduces the context of corporate worship. And he's talking about prayer and he's talking about the role of men in the prayer of the church. And he talks specifically about a problem that was going on. And that was that men were coming into the corporate worship of the church and they were arguing and disputing. They were were sort of uh, displaying anger 
were in a dispute of spirit and they were arguing and all of this was on display. And Paul has to correct the men in the church. And he says to him, when you gather in the Lord's house and you gather with the body of Christ, you're to come lifting holy hands in prayer. Holy hands, clean hands. You're not to come with a bunch of arguing and disputing and anger. Because the the peace of God's people and the worship of holy God is at stake here. And the men are desecrating all of that by coming with a combative, argumentative spirit. And Paul corrects it. And so in the very same context, he says, likewise. Likewise, in the same context. And when the church has gathered and God's people have come together, just as men are not supposed to come with an angry, disputive, combative attitude and spirit and words, likewise, when the ladies come to the corporate worship gathering, there's something that they need to be thinking about as well. That word likewise sets for us the context into which he speaks here. The context is corporate worship. In fact, that's the context, really, the body of Christ for the whole book. In chapter 3, verse 14 and following, you might recall, Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you might know how one ought to behave in the household of God. God, Paul's concern in Ephesus is that the church understand how they're to behave when they come together. The behavior of the body when they come together. How is it when the church gathers, people are to behave and to order themselves? One way that they're to behave is men are not to come with an angry, disputive, argumentative heart and attitude and spirit and behavior. Another thing that needs to be thought about when the church gathers for its worship is something that relates to the men. I mean, to the women. So the context is the corporate gathered worship of the church in the body where the Word of God is preached like it's being done right now. And in regard to the women in worship, Paul has two things that he's concerned about. When he moves from talking about men and their argumentative spirit, there's two things that he wants to to, to speak to the women about. He's concerned with how the woman both presents herself and what she pursues when she gathers. How she presents herself and what she pursues. So we'll take them in the order Paul gives them. What is it about her presentation that he's concerned about? Well, he's concerned about how she carries herself in the body, which is displayed most prominently in the way that she dresses herself. Now, if we look at this on the surface, we might think that Paul is really just concerned about clothing. He is concerned about clothing. Make no mistake about it. But he's not only concerned about clothing. A better word uh, than clothing would be her deportment. Now, I asked my wife, do you know what deportment means? And I've asked a couple other people, and nobody seems to know. It's not a word we use a lot. Deportment. But let me give you a, a definition for the word deportment. Here's your vocabulary lesson for the day. You can use it if you ever get on Jeopardy or something like that. Deportment simply means the manner in which one conducts oneself. The manner in which one conducts oneself. Paul is not concerned specifically and only about how a woman dresses, although he is concerned about that. He's concerned about the whole way she carries herself, which consumes both how she dresses and the way in which she carries herself within her clothing. And he says women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold pearls or costly attire but what's proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, let me break down this verse for you in a couple of ways so that you can understand what Paul is doing here. He lays out in the very beginning of this verse a principle, and then he gives sort of an immediate application to the church at Ephesus, and then he draws back a broader principle of the heart that really is an eternal truth. And so we'll kind of look at it this way. But what's the practical principle? Let me just lay it out for you this way so that it's clear and obvious. Here's the practical principle Paul is laying out. That a Christian woman's dress should reflect respectability, modesty, and self-control. A Christian woman's dress should reflect respectability, modesty, and self-control. Now, lest we write off Paul as some sort of a chauvinist, we would look at 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter says almost the exact same thing. He says, don't let your adorning be external to the women, like the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty of a gentle spirit and a quiet spirit, 
which in God's sight is very precious. It's almost identical to what Paul argues here. So if Paul's a chauvinist, so is Peter. But neither are. He's simply saying that when women gather for the body, to, to the corporate worship of the body, there's a certain way that women should present themselves. And here, he says, he uses words like respectability, modesty, self-control. She needs to carry herself and dress herself in a way that's respectable, in a way that's modest, in a way that, that communicates self-control. Well, these words are fairly self-explanatory, but respectable means it carries the idea of orderly. She's to be orderly in her apparel. She's to be discreet in her apparel. It's, it, it refl- she's to dress in a way that reflects humility. We could summarize that word by saying she's to dress in a way that doesn't call particular attention to herself just based on the way that she's clothed herself. It's respectable. The word modest has sort of sexual overtones to it. An author by the name of Kelly says this. He says this word connotes feminine reserve in matters of sex. Feminine reserve in matters of sex. It's simply saying, he's saying that when when women dress themselves and carry themselves into the body of Christ, that their dress should reflect that she is a chaste and an honorable woman. It's the opposite of seductive and suggestive way of dressing. It it conveys modesty. And this isn't just the way that she dresses, but also the way that she carries herself. It's it's saying that not only in the way she dresses, but she's not to come and carry herself like a flirty sort of a woman within the body of Christ. Frankly, as a Christian woman anywhere. Her demeanor is not flirty. It's not provocative. Nor is the way that she has dressed herself. It doesn't call attention to itself by virtue of being immodest. It's not said that she doesn't dress herself in a way that is seductive, that calls attention to her sexuality, that, that, that gains attention from other people for things that should only be the attention of her husband. That's what modest means. And then he says that she should dress with self-control. That should be sort of what's modeled here which simply means restrained, disciplined. It means sober. It means it displays sort of a self-mastery. And what he's saying is just as men can be easily tempted toward anger and disputing, and that anger and disputing can carry over when the church gathers into the body life, he's saying in the same way, women can be tempted to vanity and to desire attention and to an inordinate desire to be desired. And that too can carry over into the life of the body. It doesn't help that we live in a culture where beauty is so, or that sort of the image of beauty is so warped. And men contribute to this tremendously by evaluating women largely on the way that they look, on the basis of looks and appearance. Men have, or men have sort of made women a slave to their appearance, or at least to feel like they are to feel like they have to fit some sort of an outward sort of a particular mold in order to be seen as beautiful. And so in many ways, men in our culture put women in a very difficult situation when it comes to how they're to adorn themselves and dress themselves. And all of that spills over into the church. So how are Christian women to dress? They're dressed in ways that are respectable and modest and show self-control. I can't define that any more clearly for you as a particular Christian woman, you have to define that for yourself. I mean, if you ask me, does this modest? I can tell you if I think it's modest, but at the end of the day, that's not really what matters the most. And it's a fool's errand to go around setting a bunch of arbitrary legalistic standards about sizes and lengths and all of these kinds of things because that isn't the point anyway. So a woman's dress should reflect respectability, modesty, self-control. The immediate application that Paul goes to immediately for Timothy in Ephesus is this. He gives an example that would have been current to his day. He says, he speaks of things like braided hair, excessive jewelry, and expensive clothing. Everyone in, in Ephesus, when Timothy read this letter out loud in the church, everybody in Ephesus would have known immediately what Paul was speaking about when he said braided hair, excessive jewelry, and expensive clothing. 
It was a particular application that was very well known. A particular look, if you will, that was familiar to the church that would call immediate attention to the woman. Braided hair. What is that talking about? Well, James Hurley writes this. He says, The sculpture and literature from the period make it clear that women often wore their hair in enormously elaborate arrangements with braids and curls interwoven or piled high like towers and decorated with gems and or gold and or pearls. The courtesans wore their hair in numerous small pendant braids with gold droplets of pearls or gems every inch or so, making a shimmering screen of their locks. Can you imagine that? Women spending hours upon hours in preparing their hair and braiding and ornamenting it with gold and jewels and all of these things so that when she walks into the room, you don't see her face, you don't think about her godliness. All you see is her hair. And you say, dear Lord, look at that woman's hair. Now, sometimes we say that about people anyway, men and women, and rightly so. But in this case, it was intentional. It was intentional. And at least the culture around affirmed this as something that was good and something that people ought to do. And so it's clear that this was, there was some spillage into the church, that some women were coming to the corporate gathering reflecting that trend in the culture to call attention to themselves with their hair. He goes on to say, excessive jewelry. It wasn't just that they did their hair like that. Uh, It was that they uh, added to the hair with excessive jewelry, with jewelry ornamenting themselves in all sorts of other ways. Philo, a Jewish writer, he describes pleasure as a woman, and he says this, Her hair is dressed in curious and elaborate plates. She wears costly raiment, bracelets and necklaces, and every other feminine ornament wrought of gold and jewels, hung around her around her so are you getting the scene the culture around it, it elevated that women should do their hair in this particular gaudy sort of a way that spoke to uh, uh, sort of uh, a trend in the culture that was popular and it was affirmed and it was valued and along with that came this excessive array of jewelry as well and to to go on top of that was sort of the adornment of expensive clothing he makes that Uh, Point as well, expensive clothing. Every culture and every place, people understand what is expensive clothing. We don't have to talk about that or describe that. It was true in Paul's culture. It was true in Timothy's uh, context in Ephesus. When people walked in and they spent an inordinate amount of money on their clothing, they wore what was considered expensive clothing. What that meant was someone looked at that woman and immediately was called to what she was wearing. Ooh, she's wearing Gucci. Ooh, she's wearing Armani. Look at that. And it went along with the hair and the jewelry. The issue is not that women shouldn't fix their hair. It isn't that women shouldn't braid their hair. It isn't that women should never wear jewelry. It isn't that women shouldn't have nice clothes or spend money on clothing that they think is beautiful and that they enjoy wearing. None of those things are the issue. None of those things are the issue. There were two main issues with what was going on in the church at Ephesus in regards to the way that women were dressing and carrying themselves. The two main issues are the way they were dressing and carrying themselves. First, it flaunted wealth. It flaunted wealth. I believe next week Britt is going to be teaching one of our passages that comes up where he speaks directly to the wealthy in this church and has some things to say to them. But this was one of the ways that wealth was manifest. And these women were coming into the body and by their hair and by their jewelry and by their clothing, they were flaunting their wealth in the face of all the rest of the women in the body of Christ who could not afford to dress and carry themselves that way. So it was an extreme form of vanity It incited jealousy and covetousness in the body of Christ. And it was wrong. Because it made a show of their wealth. And the body of Christ is no place for anybody to come and make a show of their wealth. Your wealth has absolutely no bearing on your walk with the Lord... And in fact, one could argue, and maybe Britt will help us with this, that wealth is not an enhancement to your walk with the Lord, but it becomes a a real challenge to navigate in your walk with the Lord. So the two issues with how they were dressing was they were flaunting their wealth in their dress, and the other issue is they were communicating a sexual availability. 
That was the other thing that was going on. The way they were dressing not only flaunted their wealth, but it communicated sort of a sexual availability. And due to time, I can't spend a whole lot of time with this, but just think in terms of the temple to Artemis, which was almost always sort of ornamented around its large external pillars with a bunch of prostitutes who hung around there enticing the men to come and worship. And those prostitutes had a particular way of dressing that certainly was intended to excite and to capture the sexual attention of men. The way that the prostitutes were dressing was obvious. It was clear to all. It was associated with sensuality and promiscuity. It was revealing, and it was intended to incite male lust. That's what it was intended to do. And you can walk around in our culture or any culture, and you can find, usually identify prostitutes who are hanging around on the streets because of the way they dress. It communicates an availability. It's provocative, revealing, sensual. Paul is essentially saying, don't come into the church dressed like a prostitute. Don't come wearing things that are intended to arouse sort of the sexual attention of men. Don't wear things that are intending to call attention to your body in a sensual, provocative sort of a way that reveals things about you that really should only be revealed to your husband. Don't do that. Don't carry yourself that way. And the biggest problem with all of this is that it called attention away from the Lord and to the woman. That's the heart of the problem. When they gathered as a church, the whole point of the gathering as a church is for God's people to come together and as a unified body to give full attention to the Lord and to His Word. And the way these women were dressing was calling attention to them and therefore calling attention away from the Lord. That's the problem. That's the problem. The real problem. Phil Riken says, A woman who loves to be noticed in church must remember with whom she is competing. He says, instead of living like that, women, ladies, instead of carrying yourself like that, instead of flaunting your wealth in the way that you dress yourself, instead of dressing in a way that's provocative and sensual, that communicates that you're interested in sort of the sexual attention of men, you know what a godly woman's emphasis should be? He says her focus should be godliness expressed in good works, not her appearance. That's his his call to to the women at Ephesus. He's saying when you dress yourself that way and you carry yourself that way, it does not reflect a heart of godliness. Instead of being known for your hairstyle, instead of being known for your jewelry, instead of being known for your expensive clothing, how about being known for your godly life and your good works instead? Instead of investing all that time and energy and money and effort into your clothing and your jewelry and your hair and your appearance, why not invest all of that in your godliness and give attention to that? You see, God defines beauty a very different way from our culture. A very different way. And I would just ask you, ladies, who would you rather impress? Men who don't matter in the big scheme? Or God who made you? So the application of all this is is this. Paul's not saying that women shouldn't care how they dress. He's not saying that women need to dress intentionally frumpy and intentionally unappealing and intentionally bland and have no joy or pleasure in their clothing or how they or what they wear. He's not saying that they should not fix their hair in particular styles or wear particular jewelry or never wear makeup. To, to go there is to miss the point entirely. What he's saying to ladies in Ephesus and to ladies in Charleston is this. Consider how you present yourself when you gather with the body of Christ. Consider how you dress yourself. Consider how you carry yourself. What motivates your choice in clothing? What's the motivator? Why do you choose what you choose? What is it that you want to receive in relationship to how you present yourself? In other words, why am I dressing the way I'm dressing? What is it that I want to get out of wearing this or that? Who is it that I'm trying to impress? How do you determine, how do you determine what for you is modest and is respectable? 
what displays self-control. And I'm just going to say this really directly. Pastors and elders should really never have to address this in the body of Christ. We should never have to address this. The only time pastors and elders have to speak to this issue is twofold. It's when we come to a text like 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I know you'll never let me evade it, or it's when husbands and fathers abdicate their responsibility altogether. Because that's really the purview of husbands and fathers. Husbands, you're responsible for helping your wives in this particular area of their life. You have a responsibility to help your wife understand and know in your home and in your family what is modest and what is respectable and what communicates self-control. And that needs to be an open conversation between husband and wife, not a combative one. And ladies, you need to listen to the advice and to the counsel of your husbands on that regard. Because they're men, and they may be very in tune to some things that you're not in tune to. Particularly in regards to how men view ladies. And your husband may say to you something like this, Honey, you are a beautiful woman, and that is a a lovely uh, outfit that you have on there. But speaking to you as a man, and I enjoy seeing you in it, but speaking as a man, when we go out today, I can tell you that the other men who see you are not going to be thinking about your good works. They're going to be thinking about something else. Is that what you want? I think maybe the conversation could go like that. In a loving and kind and gracious sort of a way, not an accusatory, mean, or harsh sort of a way. But as a part of laying down your your life for your wife, which is what a husband is supposed to do. You have those even though they're hard. Men, don't be cowards with this. Don't be. Listen, I'm going to just tell you right here, and I'm going to say it just flat out. I have a beautiful wife. That's the truth. She's right there. So you can see for yourself. But I know already, you don't have to tell me. She's always been beautiful. In fact, stunningly beautiful. And I'll tell you this, because she'll never tell you, she was the first Miss Charleston Southern University that there ever was. You didn't know that about my wife, did you? And if you, address, if you bring that up in her presence, the first thing she will tell you is, yes, I'm the only Miss Charleston Southern University that did not have to compete in a swimsuit competition. And that's the truth. Because the first Miss Charleston Southern University pageant did not quali- was not a qualifier for the Miss South Carolina pageant and had no swimsuit competition. And she won it hands down. And I, I bring that up because it's true. But I bring it up because it it, it sort of runs parallel to something else. We've been married for 21 years. That's hard to believe now. I look, we we got married when we were like 12. I know it's hard for you to know that. But I bring this up because I want to say this to you. Not one time in 21 years of marriage have I ever had to initiate that conversation with my wife. Never. Never. Not once. Not once have I ever had to stop her before going out the door and say, Honey... You look beautiful in that, but I don't think you should wear that. I don't think it's modest. I don't think it's respectable. I'm not sure it's how you want to present your... Never have I ever had to say that to her. Never. I mean, she has a sense about her of what's modest and what is responsible, respectable. In fact, she will initiate that conversation with me sometimes when I think, what do you mean? Is that, there's nothing wrong with that. It looks fine. But it's a matter of importance to her. And I bring up the fact that she's stunningly beautiful because she could choose to carry herself a different way. But she doesn't. And that's commendable by far. And that's not to to denigrate any other woman who struggles with this matter. I'm sure she will tell you there are other things in life that both of us struggle with sin-wise. That just doesn't happen to be one of them. But husbands... Love your wives in this area. Fathers, care about your daughters in this area. Teach them what is modest and respectable. Moms don't resist that with daughters. This causes combat in homes all the time. Fathers who are trying to raise this issue and mothers who say, leave her alone and let her wherever she wants. Ladies, don't get in the way of that. Husbands should speak to that issue. Fathers should speak to that issue. And mothers should teach modesty. All right, so Paul's concerned about that, and you and I should be concerned about that in general. 
He's concerned about how this woman presents herself or how all of these women present themselves. And then finally, he's concerned about what they pursue. And there's absolutely no time to address this. So I'm going to have to figure out some other way to address this. Maybe we'll just sort of circle back. Yeah, we're going to have to circle back. Because I think you probably won't lunch today, right? I'm going to give you a quick the overview because I'm not sure when I can circle back. So let me just sort of give you the overview of this last piece of this. And it's really quite simple, although it looks confusing. When he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I don't permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and so on and so forth. The big issue here is he's saying, when women gather in the body of Christ for the main corporate gathering of the church, they're not to be pursuing leading, they're to pursue learning. And again, we don't have the time, but we could talk about extensively how this was an elevation of the role of women in the life of the church because women in the culture were not permitted to be learners. They were not permitted to be educated. They were seen as second-class people. The Jewish Talmud said this, it would be better for the words of the Torah to be burned than should they be entrusted to a woman. That's the general view. It's a fool's errand to teach a woman. She has no business being a learner being educated. Women played a very small role in public life. In fact, the Babylonian Talmud said this, the men came to learn, the women came to hear. Women weren't even capable of learning. They could just hear. It's the prevailing thought of the day. And Paul says, no way. That's garbage. When the body of Christ comes, women are to learn. They're to be learners. They're to be consumers of the truths of Scripture. They're to be the people who, just like men, dive into the Word of God and study it and learn its truths and learn its doctrines and learn what it means and are able to hide it in their own hearts, learn it and communicate it to other people. It's a severe elevation of the role of women. They're to be learners. They're to do it in a way that doesn't pursue eldership is really the thrust of the rest of this passage. This whole issue of quietly and with all submissiveness. There are only two places in which the Bible I mentioned earlier speaks to the issue of women being submissive to a man in any form. The first is in the home between a husband and a wife, and the other is here in the context of the corporate body and a woman in relationship to the authoritative teaching of the elders of the church. The Bible nowhere teaches that all women are to submit to all men in general just on the basis of gender. A woman is to submit to her husband as he submits to the Lord and lays down his life for her in the home. In the context of the church, a woman is to submit to the teaching authority of the elders joyfully, becoming a joyful learner underneath that teaching, not trying to usurp it, And the elders of the church who are responsible for that are to be just like a husband, a servant leader. Right on the heels of this, Paul is going to lay out for us the qualifications for elder. And there are really two things that set elders apart from every other leader and teacher in the church. One is that they're able to teach, and the other is that they hold the authority that comes with the Word of God and being able to apply what they teach into the life of the body. The authority doesn't come from some exalted status. It comes from their familiarity with the text and their ability to read it, teach it, and apply it to the particular situations of body life. I don't have inherent authority just because I'm a man or just because I hold the position of elder. The only authority I have comes when I stand underneath and behind the Word of God and I teach that accurately. That's the authority that I have. When it comes to what color the carpet we should put in the sanctuary, I have zero authority. My opinion doesn't mean jag more than yours does. Because I'm a man, it doesn't mean any more than any woman. It doesn't matter. It's not what leadership is about in the body of Christ. It's not what authority is about. It's not about status. It's not a more important or smarter or better. It's about the authority of the Word and the ability to teach that and apply it in submission to the Lord in a way that blesses the church. And it's the exclusive role of elders. And it just so happens, as Paul is going to tell us, that elders are men. So the issue here isn't that women can't be elders, but men can be. The issue is 
that women are not to usurp the teaching and authority of the elders in the body of Christ. They are to be a joyful, submissive learner, just like every other man in the church who is not an elder. Does that make sense? We get this all messed up because we make it a men versus women thing. The reality is the elders are the ones who are invested with the teaching responsibility. The responsibility of of laying out the doctrine of the body of Christ and preaching in the corporate worship service. That is the responsibility, the exclusive responsibility of elders. It just so happens that elders are always men, but not all men are elders, and not all men have that authority. Unless you say, well, you know, Paul was really talking about a cultural thing here, and, you know, this is America 2019. You know, come on, what's the big deal? Paul does not ground his argument in culture. He grounds it in creation. He says, the reason that it is this way, the reason that women are not... And by the way, if you have a Bible translation that says you should be silent, that's a bad translation of that word. Ladies, you're not required to be silent when you gather with the church. Number one, it's frankly impossible. Right? Right? And I mean that joyfully because body life would be horrible if you were all quiet and never spoke. We'd just have a bunch of men talking about football or whatever. I don't know. You bring life and you bring flavor to the body when you speak. And that's a joyful part of being a part of the body. You're not expected to be silent. The issue is quietly and joyfully when we gather with the body. It's the voice of the teaching pastor and elder who's responsible for preaching and teaching the Word of God who should be heard, not yours. That's the issue. That's the issue. And it's because, Paul says, of creation. He makes two two comments here about this. He says creation order is the first thing. Adam was created first and then Eve. Paul says, hey, God... When God made mankind, He did it for a reason. And he, he could have made men a thousand different ways. He could have created men and women at exactly the same time if He wanted to communicate something, but He chose not to. He chose to create Adam and to give Adam a role in regards to His creation. He then subsequently chose to create Eve and make clear that her responsibility was to be a complementary helpmate to Adam. That she was to complement him, not to compete with him. That she was given a unique role that was specifically hers. And that when the two came together, the picture was complete and perfect. And it was to operate in harmony with one another. I say this in weddings all the time to husbands and wife. I say it to the men. Men, your responsibility is not to lord over your wife. It's not to rule her or to be ruled by her. God says she's here to complete you. That's the way we were created. But Paul insists that the order matters and that God designed it that way for a reason. You can think of the issue of primogenitor, if you maybe have heard of this in the Old Testament or other cultures even. The firstborn son becomes the inheritor, right, of the estate. He becomes it. The father dies. Who is it that rises to headship in the family? It's the, the first son. It's not that the first son is smarter than the second or third, or that he's better, or that he's more capable, or he has more ability. Often the case is he does not have any of those things, and it is specifically related to the order in which he was born. The same is true here. Man has a particular role, not because no woman could ever measure up to him in terms of ability or intellect or status, but because God has designed an order, purely because of that. And then he says the second thing is this, when we rebel against that creation order, the results are devastating. They're devastating. And this is the part that looks confusing. This is the part that looks confusing in the verse. Are you okay? Are you okay? This is what, you're not, nobody's rushed the stage or thrown anything yet, so I think we're okay. This is the part that sounds confusing. I do want to clear this before we leave. He says, Adam was formed first, then Eve, verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she'll be saved through childbearing. Just wrap that piece up. What is he talking about? It makes it sound like Eve was just so, so dumb and gullible that she got deceived. And so somehow she's lesser than Adam, who was not foolish enough to be deceived. 
And that's not at all what Paul is communicating here. Now, there's no parallel to this text anywhere else for us to compare it to. But that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is this. He's, he's making the argument that at both Adam and Eve, what happened in the Garden of Eden when the fall took place, was that they completely upended the creation order. They completely turned it on its head, and the result was the fall. The, the way this was supposed to work was... God rules over all. Adam leads his wife in submission to the Lord. She joyfully submits to his leadership as unto the Lord. And all of this works in perfect harmony. When we get to the Garden of Eden in the fall, that whole thing gets turned upside down. And the woman is now not submitting herself to the leadership of her husband. She's submitting herself to the leadership of another creature. And she is now not only doing that, but she's now leading her husband into sin. And the problem that that, that this whole issue of she was deceived and Adam wasn't is not a knock on Eve, it's really a knock on Adam. He's saying at at least Eve was deceived. Adam walked right in with his eyes wide open, idiot. Adam... Adam completely abdicated his responsibility and completely participated in a complete upside-down turn of the created order. The woman is submitting to a creature. The husband is now submitting to his wife. And the whole thing goes sideways. That's what he's trying to communicate. That there is an order, and God has set this up to work in a certain way. And when you turn it on its head, you have chaos. And that's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. And Eve was an active player in that. And so Paul is saying, listen, this is the basis for why the church operates like it does. It's not because we're a bunch of chauvinists or because we're trying to set up a patriarchy or to suppress women. The role that a woman cannot attain to in the life of the church is that of preaching and teaching elder who is responsible for the the delineation and the preaching, the regular preaching and teaching and laying down of the authoritative doctrine of truth from the Word of God from the pulpit. That is what is being forbidden here. And incidentally, most men are excluded from that as well. We'll see that when we get to the elder qualifications. This is perfect because our time is way completely up, and I don't have to address that part about being saved through childbearing. So this is fantastic. You can ask me about that later because I am prepared to answer it, but I don't think it's worth taking your time at this point. Other than to say, the end of that passage is a hopeful picture for ladies and for women. Uh, Women, let's close it this way. I'm just singling you out because Paul singled out the women in this text. We'll deal with the men, trust me. Just don't, don't worry about it. We got it. Got it. Their day is coming. Their day is coming. Can we just talk honestly here for a moment? There's a, it's really easy, it's going to be really easy for you as 2019 American women to just write this off as foolishness, as nonsense, as backwards. Just say, you know, this doesn't apply to me. This is crazy. This sounds like, what are we trying to go back to a little house on the prairie in the Waltons or something? Next thing you know, you're going to tell me I can't vote? These are the conversations that pastors have. I just want to ask you to humbly submit yourself to the Word of God. And come at that text with clear eyes. If you're a woman who desires to be godly, if you're a woman who desires to honor the Lord with your life, you'll care about what this says. And you will give attention to obey it. Because, not because it benefits anyone else, but because it relates to the condition of your own soul and it reflects what's going on in your heart. One author said, the way a woman dresses is a mirror to her mind. There's a relationship between how you carry yourself and what's going on in your heart. And only you can really probe that. I don't know what's going on in your heart. I don't know what's going on in your mind. I can see how you dress. But I don't know the deeper things. You do. And I would ask you, I would humbly as the pastor of the church to say, as we wrap this up today and as you move forward throughout the week, think about this issue in your life. How do you carry yourself and how do you dress yourself? And what does that convey? Is it modest and respectable? Does it, does it show self-control and godliness? Is it, does the way I carry myself call attention to my good works and my ministry and godliness? Or does it call attention to just superficial things about me? What do I want to be known for in the body of Christ and beyond? My body, my shape, my 
clothes, my jewelry, my hair, or my godliness. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we understand. We're, we're no fools here. We understand that this is hard stuff. We understand that this does not land well on modern ears. But your word judges every culture. The culture does not judge your word. And we, as a body of Christ here at Grace on the Ashley, are committed to your word in its fullness. Whether it's fashionable or not, whether it rolls with the times or it doesn't. I pray, Lord, for the ladies who are here in the room today, primarily because this text impacts them. And I pray, Lord, that you would soften their hearts in regard to this area of their lives. That you would help them, Lord, to resist independence in this area. Help them to resist the temptation to say, I'm going to live however I want to. It doesn't matter about anybody else. I'm going to do what I want. Lord, help them to find their identity in you, not in their appearance. Help them to understand that beauty emits from a heart that is godly, not from a face or a shape that looks a certain way. Help them, Lord, to be concerned about impressing you and not impressing men. And Lord, if there are struggles in a particular lady's life in regard to this, I pray, Lord, that you would help them overcome them. Lord, I pray for the men who are in our group as well, for the husbands and the fathers who have to navigate this in their home as well, that you give them grace, that you give them a peaceful spirit, but that you would also give them courage to speak into the lives of their wives and daughters in a way that lifts them up and builds them up. It helps them. And Lord, I pray that the ladies in this church would know how valued they are in this particular body, how much we love them, how much we need them, how much their gifts bring to the life and the effectiveness of the work of the kingdom here at Grace on Ashley, and how ruined we would be without them. Help them to feel that this morning, Lord. By your Spirit, do your work in us, we pray, for Christ's sake.